0: I want to invite you now to turn to the book of John. We've been studying through the book of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we have come to John chapter 11, verse 45 through 57. (coughs) John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Last week we looked at the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and this week we will be looking at the response that was generated because of this miracle this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead Jesus had gone out to Perea and was ministering there he had left the large public ministry in Jerusalem for the last time but he returned into the area about two miles away from Jerusalem to minister to Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, who had recently passed away. A number of Jews had come out and they were consoling Mary and Martha. And we pick up the account, John chapter 11, verse 45. <coughs> the text reads Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, Who was high priest that year said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem, out of the country before the Passover, to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray, Father, that you would teach us that we might hear from you that the truth of your word cause us to grow, open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) About two weeks ago, there was a debate that was streamed online. A number of people went in person to it, not from here, but was well publicized, a debate between Bill Nye, who is also known as Bill Nye the Science Guy, and Ken Ham, on the subject of evolution and creation. They wanted to present their arguments, they wanted to present their case, their viewpoints in a convincing manner. Even though both parties knew that in doing so, they were not expecting to persuade the other of their viewpoint. Ken Ham's Viewpoint on creationism comes from a presupposition and that presupposition is what Christians share and that presupposition is that what the scriptures teach is true that the bible is the word of god and it tells us what is true the reason we believe in the veracity or the truthfulness of the scriptures is because of faith as well as bolstered by the evidence both internally and externally of the uniqueness of the scriptures. It is by faith as well as bolstered by the evidence of how the scriptures were written. Internally, the scriptures are corroborated by the fact that it is a unique book that was written unlike any other book that ever has ever existed. A unique book that was written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, by people from all walks of life, from fishermen to nobles, by people who come from different backgrounds, written on three different continents, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, people whose professions differed, but all who wrote about one cohesive, unified theme, that of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, in a non-contradictory way over that period of time, outlining God's plan, His work, and the exaltation of Christ. The external evidence argues for the uniqueness of Scripture as well. That of prophecy, which was prophesied hundreds of years earlier and fulfilled, Different ways, many of them through Christ Himself, hundreds of years later. The external evidence of archaeological finds which bolster once again the veracity of the scriptures. No other book that has ever existed lays claim in such a breath and has such evidence to back up its claims. In the face of fulfilled prophecy, in the face of archaeological evidence, for example, people still have a problem with the scriptures. As Bill Nye would say, that book that was written some 2,000 years ago, he has a problem with it. Why? Because at the heart of it all is a hardened heart of unbelief, of unbelief. Romans chapter 1, if you'll turn your Bibles there book two over, in the book of Romans, a couple of books over, Romans chapter one, it tells us this very clearly in a very well-known passage. Romans chapter one, verse 18. <clears throat> it says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. When a person walks outside in the morning and they see the creation of the world, they see the trees, they see the sky, they see animals, they see nature. God's attributes are displayed, His eternal power is displayed, has been clearly seen through what has been made. What is known about God is evident to them, scriptures say, and evident within them, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, that there is a creator God. The face of evidence, every single day, people suppress that truth in unrighteousness. That is the same suppression in the face of evidence that Jews here do. In the context of this passage, the Jewish leaders have seen Jesus perform perhaps the greatest sign aside from his own resurrection in the face of that, in the face of his claim to be a deity, in the face of the raising of Lazarus from the dead after four days when the body has already begun to decompose. They reject Christ. And so we look at this passage today in that light, the rejection of Christ, because when Christ comes, he causes division. There is division over who he is, and then there is the decision to kill Jesus, and then Jesus departs from there, away from the Jews. So we look at the decision or the division over Jesus in verse 45. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, they believed in him. Some believed, but the next verse says, but some of them, in contrast, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. There were some who just were against Christ, and they went and told the Pharisees. Like many times as we have seen in the past in the book of John, there is division. There is division over who Jesus is, what he has done. Some believe while others reject Christ. Many had come to console Mary and of course to comfort her and they saw and they believed. But others reject Christ despite the evidence that is placed before them. They reject Christ. You know, just as we have talked about in, in Sunday school today when I was in seminary, there was in the early 1990s this, uh, this whole sweeping of the signs and wonders movement that had come in that was affecting various parts of the world was known as the third wave of the Holy Spirit. It was in full swing around that time, and books were published like Power Evangelism. One of the key players and the founders of the Signs and Wonders movement's name was John Wimber and others. They wanted people, and they believed that people ought to expect these things, these signs and wonders to occur on a regular basis. They would look in the Bible and say, well, look, all of these things happened there. We should expect them to also happen here. The presupposition was, if we see these things, people will turn to God. People will turn to God. They'll see God is real. God is at work. Prime example, they'll say, was, was the incident of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The story where Elijah was up against the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets, they made two altars. And the prophets of Baal would put their sacrifice on there. And they would they would would walk around, they would chant, they would cut themselves, calling upon Baal, hoping that fire would come down and ignite and consume the sacrifice. And they did so all day long, to no avail. And Elijah came and he built, he dug a trench around his altar, stacked the stones and, and put the wood on there and put the animal for sacrifice on there. And he had four pitchers of water that would, he would call to have dousing the, the sacrifice, drenching it three times over, such that it would run into the trench. Then he prayed to God. God sent fire, and it says in 1 Kings 18.38, Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah sent them and they slew the prophets of Baal. And they would say, look, look, people have got to see these miraculous signs and wonders if they're going to turn to God. And if they do, they'll turn, and this is a wonderful thing. The fact of the matter is, many folks who had seen that, as you read later on in the story, was a superficial turning to God because they turned and went their own way live their own sinful life even after that. The truth of the matter is, is that signs and wonders do not necessarily convince people to turn to the Lord. They do not necessarily convince people to turn to the Lord. You remember the parable in Luke 16 of Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus and the rich man, and by the way, that's the only parable in which There was a name given to a particular individual in that parable. This is a Lazarus that is not the Lazarus that we read here in the book of John. There was a rich man, it says, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, and there was a poor name named Lazarus, verse 20 of Luke 16, who laid at the gate covered with sores, and he would desire the crumbs that fell off of the table. Both of them died. Both of them died. The rich man in the parable went to hell, and the man named Lazarus, the poor man, went to heaven. There was a chasm in between, and the parable talks about a conversation. And the rich man calling up to to heaven, to the poor man, and to Abraham, should say. And he said, I beg you, Father Abraham... That you send him to my father's house, for I, have lived, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The reference to Moses and the prophets is a summation of the scriptures that they had. Moses, right in the the first five books of Moses and the prophets, the scriptures that they had, if they will not even listen to the word of God, they will not listen to someone even if he rises from the dead. That is the response. Even some who saw the raising of Lazarus from the dead in this text. Man who had been dead for four days, whose body had become decomposing. A man who came out of the tomb, came back to life. They rejected Christ. Utterly astounding when you stop to think about it. He was the Son of God, the creator of the universe, in person, raising a man back to life. The face of God himself, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, to see this happen and yet reject Christ. The people today will do the exact Same thing, despite the evidence that is presented to them. In the face of truth, they will run away. Like when you walk into a dark room, you turn on the light, the cockroaches all run. Why? Because they want to do what they do in the darkness. They're afraid of the light. The light exposes them. And that's how people respond to the light of the scriptures. That's how people respond to the light of truth. That's how they respond there's no denial that Jesus existed when you talk to people today. But who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, the evidence for him being the creator of the world and the son of God, people don't believe that he is God himself. You ask a person who is a, of a new age persuasion, they, they, they'll say Jesus is an avatar. You ask somebody who is a Mormon, who is Jesus? They'll say, well, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, Satan. You ask a Jehovah Witness, who is Jesus? They'll say, well, Jesus is Michael, the archangel. You ask a Muslim, who is Jesus? They'll say, Jesus is a prophet, not as good as Muhammad, but he is a prophet. Who is Jesus? The face of evidence, people reject his claims, and that is what people do here. So they go and tell the Pharisees, and it says that there is a decision, verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees (coughs) convened a council. Now, this council is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling body of the Jews, and we're coming on the cusp in this particular time frame, right before the passion or the suffering of Jesus. And so they convened a council of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was given the power to oversee all the civil ceremony and religious affairs of the Jews. With the exception of capital punishment, which was reserved, the reserved right of Rome. They saw all of the other affairs. They were the ruling body composed of two major parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they didn't see eye to eye on very many things at all. They were at polar opposites in the things that they believed. But there were two parties similar to our government here. The Sadducees held the offices of of high priests and of chief priests. The Sadducees were the materialists. They were the naturalists. They were the ones who were the wealthy aristocrats. They were the ones who didn't believe in many of the supernatural things like angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in many of the books of the Old Testament. They held only to the first five books of Moses, really literally interpreting many of them in a wooden literalism. They were those who held, though, the the powerful positions of chief priests and high priests. The Pharisees, however, they were popular among the people. They were more numerous on that Sanhedrin. They were those who did believe in a resurrection and did believe in angels. They were those who did believe in the entire Old Testament scriptures they were very popular and influential among the people, and their soapbox was the Sabbath, that everyone must keep the Sabbath. The Sadducees, though, they were the wealthy ones. They ran the businesses in the temple, the money making businesses of the money changers and those who would bring sacrificial animals and have them exchanged for certified animals that the Sadducees had the folks trading away and making a lucrative profit on. They gathered the council and they said this, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. Notice, they don't dispute the fact that he's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You know, they don't care one bit. They don't care one bit about the evidence and where it led. They don't care about what's true. They are not saying, are you sure he was raised from the dead? Are you sure that it was four days? Are you sure that this was Jesus who made the blind man see? That made the lame man walk? Was there no other alternative? None of that. Why? Because the miracles of Jesus were so profound. They were indisputable. They were indisputable. They were so very public. They were so very profound, so undeniable, that to dispute them, the person who might be disputing them might be considered to be the one who would be insane, perhaps. How could you dispute something that was so testified by so many people? So when Lazarus was raised and he shuffled himself out of the tomb, So many people saw it wasn't disputed at all. But to the ruling body of the Jews, Jesus was a threat and a very imminent one because he was, quote unquote, performing many signs. But this is what they cared about. Number one, they they cared about their position, it said. The Romans will come and take away our place. And secondly, they were concerned about the nation being taken away. Now Jesus' popularity among the masses, they were, if, they were, if that popularity was allowed to grow, you know, then the religious leaders would be forced to acknowledge acknowledge who Christ was. Jesus had frequently countered their teaching, embarrassing them in public, their authority and causing them to rethink things such that they hated him. Now, there were going to be millions of people who would descend upon Jerusalem during the Passover. Josephus says, it estimates, there were probably two and a half, maybe three million people because there were some, I should say, Josephus would say there were some probably a quarter million sacrifices that were made. And each sacrifice would atone for roughly about 10 people on average. So the priests there were sacrificing animals all day long. Ten times a quarter million would be about 250 or 2.5 million to 3 million people. Such a time when people would descend upon Jerusalem. That could be a huge liability for those who were opposing Jesus, knowing his, perhaps, popularity among the people. But in addition to their position, they were afraid for their nation. Because if there was some sort of uprising, if there was some sort of movement for Jesus that caught fire among all of the crowds, certainly Rome would hear about it. The zealots... The zealots who were a sect of Judaism would put on arms because they would want to fight for the material kingdom which they believed the Messiah would bring. Rome would hear about it and in the uneasy peace between the Jews and Romans. They would come and forcefully squash and perhaps a wholesale slaughter of their nation, deporting people all over the place. They didn't want that. In the face of evidence... They rejected the truth. They wanted to protect their own self-interest. You say, that's terrible. They just ignored the truth. I'd never do that. Think about it, though. Jewish leaders made a decision. The Jewish leaders made a decision on what they believed, what they presupposed the result would be, what they preserved, pre- pre- believed the, the result would be. And they also made a decision what would benefit themselves the most. They didn't make a decision on truth, what the right thing to do was. And many times, frankly speaking, that's the basis by which many people, including us, sometimes make our decisions. I was talking with somebody last week about this, and they were sharing with me. They would heard a Christian speaker say, well, it's okay. To lie if the person you're lying to may not be deserving of the truth. For example, it's okay to lie for those who might want to kill or commit a crime. I, as well as my friend, disagreed, recognizing the problem. Well, how do you know if somebody is deserving of the truth or not? We don't know the outcome. We don't know the outcome. We certainly don't know the future, And you don't truly know what will happen. We think we know what will happen if we do some particular thing, that course of action. I think of a number of years ago when we were in Uganda, there was a driver who drove us around and his name was Richard. And he told us a story about how he was caught, you know, he was caught by the Lord's Resistance Army. The Lord's Resistance Army is, for those of you who don't know, is led by a very wicked and a very evil man named Joseph Cohn and he abducts children in order to change them into child soldiers and Richard was abducted and he was taken captive by the LRA and they wanted to turn him into a child soldier. They made him take and carry luggage and things like that but during a a dispute, some sort of battle God's grace reached him and he escaped. He came to know the Lord and he began to help propagate the gospel. And one day he was helping and traveling with a couple of pastors. They were on bikes and they were traveling along. A couple of other pastors were traveling along when they once again ran into the Lord's resistance army. The officer stopped them, and lined them up. Two pastors and then he, and he's a very tall man, and he stuck a gun at the pastor's head, the first pastor, and he called him to deny Christ, of which the pastor said, No, he wouldn't do so. That he was a follower of Jesus Christ. The officer pulled the trigger and killed the man on the spot. Then he came to the second pastor and he put the gun to his head as well and called him to deny Christ and the pastor said no and he pulled the trigger and executed him as well. The man came to Richard and Richard wasn't a pastor but he had seen, of course, what had happened and tells the story of how the officer came and put the gun to his head and he called to him to do the same thing, to deny Christ of which he said no, that he was a child of God and that he was a Christian He pulled the trigger, and the gun jammed. The officer unjammed the gun and put the gun once again to his head and called him to deny Christ, of which he said no, and he pulled the trigger again, and the gun jammed. They became so angry that he took another gun from another soldier, and he put it to his head and called him to deny Christ, and he said no, and the gun jammed once again. And all of those who were the enemies of his would became afraid, and they said, this man, God must be with this man, and they left. We presuppose that God will do something. Perhaps we have this idea that this will happen if we don't do this or that, and so we manipulate, we lie, we do things for our own benefit. We do the same thing, we do the same thing. We say, well, we don't have to follow the law, because if we follow the law, we do this, or it might be too much trouble, these regulations, or whatever it may be, taxes, or telling the truth about my children's ages, even though they may be such and such age. We overlook some things that are unethical, because we think if we were to tell the truth, we'd be those who would be out of a job. We'd be ostracized by our coworkers. But maybe God doesn't want you to have that job in the first place. Or we look at the financial benefit or the financial consequences, and our decisions are made because of money rather than because of what is right and true. We're pragmatic. We think, what is the easiest thing to do? What is the least amount of trouble? What is the most fun, the most convenient? We look at what is the most lucrative. What will make me happy? What will be the most benefit to me? Richard could have said, hey, lie and live another day and serve God. But he didn't. Our sin waves its lying little finger to us and say, look, look. Look at what benefits you the most. Look at what happens if you do what's right. You're going to have a lot of trouble. You control the future, that sinfulness says. You control the outcome. If you do this, somebody will die, or somebody will happen to something, or you'll lose your job, or you'll lose your benefits, or whatever it may be. So you know what? It's only a small lie. It's only a small sin. It's respectable sin, as some might call it. That's what the Jewish leaders did. One of them, Caiaphas, it says, verse 49, who was a high priest that year, said to them, <coughs> you know nothing at all. Now, that's a rather brash way to say things, but among the Sadducees, it wasn't so uncommon for them to speak in such a brash, pointed, blunt way, saying, in effect, you know, Ding-dongs, you don't know a thing. Now, he was the high priest. Normally, Normally, the high priest would need to come through the Levitical line. But while Rome was in power, there was some evidence that that particular position was either bought by money or done as a political favor. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Caiaphas was a Sadducee and politically motivated he was married to the daughter of the previous high priest whose name is Annas and Annas still had great power in fact there was kind of a co-leadership with Caiaphas and Annas as it says in Luke chapter 3 verse 2 both of them are named as high priests, sort of a shared priesthood in this position of power a telltale sign of Caiaphas' influence and his power, because we're going to see him again later on in the account of Jesus, was that he held his office for 20 years. 20 years, which is an incredibly long time in the in the period of Rome's Rome's power over the area for hundred years, twenty years. Out of the 28 high priests, I mean, you divide that up, it would have been less than four years apiece if they had all ruled equally. But he held his office 20 years, especially compared to the guy who came after him only led for about 50 days. He held this position of authority and power, perhaps a puppet, perhaps of Rome. But he was an authoritative role. And as I mentioned before, the Sadducees would have been those who were running the temple business of the money changers, of those who would sell the certified sacrificial animals there, that they would bilk the people of their money and turn the temple into a swamp meat. Undoubtedly, he was very wealthy and corrupt, as were many of the Sadducees. They were, as I mentioned, the liberal materialists, and Jesus when he came in, you recall, he came in twice to the temple and cleared it, overturning the money changers' tables and driving out people with a whip made of cords. Certainly they saw the financial threat that Jesus would have brought to them. And so Caiaphas says this, verse 50. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. His words to himself were wise giving them a no alternative proposition an alternative of extremes. Jesus dies or the whole nation perishes. What do you want, guys? You don't know a thing. That's what people do. So salesmen do that. You know, we do that sometimes. When we're frustrated or whatever. We present two extremes as if that's the only option that there is to choose. And everybody nods, yes, yes, yes. Good idea, good idea. That's all we have. Jewish leaders were already determined in advance what they were going to do. They didn't ask, do you think he could really be the Messiah? People are biased because of their blindness. This is what they do. They say either do this or do that. That's it. Those are the only two choices. In his mind's eye, he thought, I'm protecting the nation. I'm protecting the people. And we're protecting ourselves. But little did he know that the words that he said, as the text tells us, was prophetic. That Jesus would die and bring together God's people in salvation. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 16, 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Just like in Genesis 50, verse 20, story of Joseph at the very end called the doctrine of concurrence. What, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God even controls Those who are leaders, for the hearts of kings, the scripture says, are like channels of water. The Lord directs them wherever he so chooses. And as history would bear out, Caiaphas was wrong. Because in 1669 to seventy nine AD, there was a man named Titus Vespasian who would come in. And under his leadership, thousands of Jews were killed, and he established control over Judea and took Jerusalem sacking it in 70 AD, even though they had put Jesus to death, thinking they were going to save the nation. Caiaphas, as a character, was corrupt. Matthew 26 tells us later on, Caiaphas, he was a spiritual charlatan, a real spiritual bully. I mean, when they brought Jesus in, in the mock trial that they will give him, when they brought Jesus in, they brought in some false witnesses to accuse Jesus. He said this, he said these things, blah, 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 blah. And then they would say to him, and he would speak up, and he'd say the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, Matthew 26, 63, The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answers him. This Caiaphas, because he was trying to pull from Jesus words from his own mouth, he says, You have said it yourself. Later on, Caiaphas tears his robe in a, a mock way. Crying, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Caiaphas was not looking for the truth. It's a mock trial, and he was the instigator, the one who goaded them into a premeditated murder of the Savior. They thought they would preserve themselves. They thought they would preserve the Jews and take them out of the crosshairs of Rome, but they didn't. They plotted together, Matthew 26 says, they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. This wasn't the first time that there was a plot to take the life of Jesus. When Jesus was born, Herod, Herod had all of those male children in and around Bethlehem, ages 2 and under, slaughtered. And then when Jesus went back to his hometown, Nazareth, his first public acts of ministry, Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah in his own hometown in Nazareth. And when he pointed to himself that he was the one that Isaiah spoke of, the townspeople dragged him to a cliff. And by the miracle of God, he passed right through them because it wasn't his time. Then he healed the blamed man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And John wrote in John chapter 5, Verse 18, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him. Many times they wanted to kill him. It was well known. It's well known among the Jews that they wanted Jesus dead. John chapter 7, verse 25 notes, "...he whom they seek to kill." That was whom they knew Jesus to be. The the thirst of these Jewish leaders for the blood of Christ wasn't going to be satiated until he died. So we have division. We have the decision to kill Jesus and now the departure of Jesus Verse 54, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly. Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus had previously left the feast of dedication to Perea. He came back just in the outskirts of Jerusalem. He had raised Lazarus from the dead, and now he knew. After this one last sign, he left We come to a time that he is going to spend an intense time with his disciples prior to his crucifixion. What an irony that people in this text, they came, they came, what? The Passover was near, 55. Many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. That's what they had to do. With certain sins, the Old Testament required that you would purify yourself prior to celebrating the Passover. And this was a huge feast. And the buzz around Jerusalem and around town was all about Jesus. They were all on the lookout for him. Do you think he's going to come? They were all talking about Jesus. But they were not committed to Jesus and that's what characterized the vast majority of the nation. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? We have very large churches in our nation around the world, large number of people large number of people who are not committed to the interests of Jesus, but they're interested in what the church might offer, whatever the program might be, the friends that they have, or the business contacts they might make, or how entertaining it might be, or what little nuggets of inspiration they may get, but ask, are you committed to Jesus? There's a big question mark. They had a high interest value here in Jerusalem. All of the talk was about Jesus, but not because they loved the Savior. You know, there's a big difference between being a a fan and a follower, right? There's a big difference between being a fan and a follower. You know, I would say nine out of ten people here in the city of Seattle is a fan, a Seahawks fan, you know, even the most non enthusiastic bandwagon person who doesn't even know the rules of football is now a fan of the Seahawks. But ask how many are followers who have been there, who hold season tickets, franchise fans winning and losing. They're there, they paint their faces, they're crazy about the Seahawks, and they will do whatever it is to cheer their team on their followers. I ask you, I like these multitudes. Are you a fan of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you there when things are well? The church is doing well. That's great. All things. But then when things get difficult, you're not there because you're not a follower. Maybe because you don't know who Christ is. We'll see that same crowd This crowd that is all buzzing about Jesus will stand and line the streets when Jesus comes in and they'll be waving palm branches and putting their cloaks on the ground for him as he rides in, hailing him, only to be cursing and saying, crucify him within a week. There's a vision over Jesus when Jesus comes and he makes profound statements and he has profound miracles. There will be those who will believe and those who will not. In the face of evidence, because they are blinded and their commitment to a presupposition which is false, till God opens their spiritual eyes, they will not come. Then there will be those who will see that they have to decide, but what happens They decide to follow Jesus or not. They'll make their decision based on some presumption of what they think will happen. Rather than trusting God. They'll make their decision based upon some self-interest. What will benefit me the most? What will be the easiest? Not what is right or what is biblical. We need to trust God. Trust God when it comes to our decision making. The last question perhaps I ask of you. What kind of people are you? Would you be like these people all buzzing and talking? Because it is popular, it is easy to be a fan, but not a follower of Jesus. When Jesus says, are you willing to follow me, anyone who wishes to come after me must take up his cross daily and follow me. What kind of disciple, follower are you? God calls us to be people who will follow him, who will follow the Savior, because, as he has already said, he is the resurrection and the life. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we give you thanks. I pray, Father, for those who are here. Lord, you know the hearts of people. And I ask that you would look into each and every heart that is here. And I pray, Father, that you would bring conviction by your spirit. Knowing, O God, that the secrets of our heart are laid bare before your eyes. Lord, may we not be people who are simply flag wavers. Who will put a fish on the back of our car, but not be willing to take a stand and to follow you without reserve? We pray God that you would help us to grow in our love for you, love for the Savior, love for others, and may we live for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name.